Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Fish. Before we begin, we just want to let you know that we have a very exciting guest joining us today. It is the editor-in-chief of the Guinness World Records, Craig Glenday. He's an amazing guy. He came to the office. We sat at a nice distance and chat facts with him, and he has a new book out. You may have heard of it. It's called Guinness World Records 2022. It is a collection of all the greatest records that have been set. You know what Guinness World Records is, like explaining the Bible. You don't need that. Anyway, it is out now. It's another fact-packed book, and Craig himself is an incredible person. It was such a pleasure having him on. So do get the book, and uh, we hope you enjoy him. That's right. And in fact, we have one other announcement to make, which is that our tour of the UK and Ireland is starting very, very soon. It's starting next week. In fact, the tour is going to be so much fun. We're going to be doing live podcasts all over the country. And there are shows coming up this next week as you're listening to this. So there are two shows in London. They're kind of work in progress shows. You'll be able to come and see our first half as we shape and mold it into the perfect form. And then after that, the first week of tour proper is the first week of October. We're going to Tunbridge Wells. We're going to Nottingham. We're going to Richmond. And we're going to Reading. So do come and get a ticket by going to no such thing as a fish.com. All of our dates are up there. Also, 27th of September, our work in progress at the Soho Theatre. If you're in London, come and see that. And then on the 30th, go to the Canal Cafe. We'll be doing a second run of it there. It's going to be really exciting. But most importantly of all, get Guinness World Records 2022 and enjoy Craig Glenday on No Such Thing as a Fish. Here we go. Yay! Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, Anna Tashinsky, and our special guest, it is the editor-in-chief of the Guinness World Records, Craig Glenday. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Craig. Right, well, my fact this week is that the world's most tattooed person finally proved that they had the Guinness World Records title by gouging out strips of their scalp uh, and posting it to the Guinness World Records headquarters. Right. In a matchbox, no less. <laughs> In a matchbox. <laughs> so, Craig, it's, it's so grim. It's a slightly odd thing to do. I mean, it's not... It's not, it's not <laughs> Did the, you ask them to do it? Or? No, it was, he was driven to do it. This is the very nice, I have to stress, it's the very, very nice Lucky Diamond Rich. And he has a full body suit of tattoos, as you'd expect. And he was convinced that he had the record, despite the current record holder, Tom Leopard. You know, Tom Leopard, who... He was a, a British military vet, lived on the Isle of Skye. Okay. He's very recognisable because he was covered head to toe in this bright saffron yellow and black spotted full body tattoo right. and wore gold thong, basically. Okay. That, that's all he wore. I like, thought a, like, we, a, like a leopard does in the like wild. Like the wild <laughs> too. I thought by getting you on, we'd be in very similar worlds, but I think you live a very different life to us. No one else is going to go, you know Tom Leopard, right? Well, you know, you know. Tom. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Tom. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, this is our bread and butter, I guess. So Tom had the record. So Tom had the record at 99.9% because okay. it was almost, you couldn't really determine. I mean, there would have been tiny bits between the fingers or up the nostrils, in the ears or whatever. So when Lucky Rich came around, everyone just said, well, he's the same. He's going to be 99.9%. And Lucky Rich is like, no, 
I am more than 100%. And what he'd done is he had a full bodysuit of exotic, interesting tattoos he'd collected from around the world. And then at some point decided to black them all in entirely using just a black ink gun. And then didn't stop there. So then started tattooing white pieces over the black and then oh. colored pieces over the white. So it's multi-layered. I think that makes sense. I think that is more than 100%. Yeah. So, I mean, the, one of the key rules for Guinness World Records is that if it's not breakable, then it can't be a record. Right. So um, it's kind of like the thing with the, we mentioned before on the show, a pepperami is actually 108% pork. Because to get 100 grams of pepperoni, you use 108 grams of pork and you kind of desiccate it down, right? You dehydrate right. it. So is Diamond Lucky Rich uh, like, I like well, that? I mean, I never tasted the bits that you sent in, but um, I don't know. Um, yes, I guess. I mean, you, you can just indefinitely carry on tattooing and layering and tattooing. Yeah. Right. It's quite rightly probably angry about this. And the first Angry about Mr. Leopard. About Mr. Leopard um, and not beating him. That he turned up at the office one day and we didn't know... He was coming. So we, I got this weird phone call. I'm not sure why I got it, because I was taking calls maybe foolishly um, from reception. And in, the, in a panic, and there's a blue man. There's a blue man in reception with white hair and metal teeth. It's like, what are you on about? The blue man group I was thinking about. So I said, can you just take a note or something? And he left a package, which ended up being like a wedding album, but not of wedding photos, but of very detailed anatomical shots of his own body and all the body parts and like really detailed, like proper, you know, cheeks apart type photography. Too much, would you say too much? Too much. <laughs> well, the other stuff I'm gonna definitely have to cut. Um, In my head, the package he sent you was the size of the matchbox. So I'm just picturing very tiny writing <laughs> as the address on it and just a very confused postman picking up this little mouse package that he uh, oh. delivers to you guys. So was it so that you could test the tattooed skin that it had multiple layers on it i think that, that he... was possibly his intention we had yeah. i think did a news story because we'd taken a core sample of the world's largest paintball so you know the guy who paints a softball every day him and his wife give a coat of paint to this thing and now it's you know a meter and a half wide okay. they actually did us a core sample so you can do the you can count the number of layers <laughs> in, in an inch and you know extrapolate from that and i think maybe inspired by that he sent us a piece of his head <laughs> and, and in the end, I think we just almost overruled the body editor and said, we have to accept this as a record because hmm. he's going to this great length. He's so passionate and he is clearly more than 100% covered, mm -hmm. I think. So eventually he got the record. Wow. People and their heads and you are something that I feel are like really connected. I read a story that you were walking down the street one day and a man recognized you, stopped you and just started kicking himself in the head. Uh, oh, in yes. order to show you <laughs> that he was able to do a bunch of it uh, in the space of a minute. And yes. he made it into the book in the end, right? Yes, because that was also, an, that started off as a joke. How many times could you, could we get a thousand applications a week to deal with? <laughs> and a thousand from all around the world, it's a lot to process. And you end up rejecting 95% of what you get. And in one included would be most times to kick yourself in the head. Well, I think he said most kicks to the head. So he did clarify, did you mean like your head <laughs> or someone else? No, it's his own head. Did you improvise on the spot? Yeah, so like, definitely your own. Yeah, no, pick your own. But this is one of James Horkin's favourite facts it is, that he it did is. on the past, oh, uh, yeah. podcast. The world record for most kicks to one's own head is 127 in yeah, a minute. it's bloody hard. I mean, the physical effort involved. So it happens all the time when people 
I mean, that's why we tend not to let people into the office, hence why Lucky Rich was turned away. So. He looks think... like a smurf, but he looks like the angriest smurf yes. in the village. Because, yeah. He, um, he, yeah, he's completely blue. I, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, I think it's because everything fades to blue eventually, isn't it? Right. That sounds like no such thing as a fish fact. <laughs> it sounds like kind of a philosophical statement. Really mm. Everything mm. fades to blue. Or an album, yeah. this is <laughs> or something, isn't it? He's got his ear canals done, apparently, and I want to know how... Ah. How deep we're talking wow. here. So his gums, mm. which is very Ooh. weird. Has he shown you his gums? Presumably post- Gums, yeah, gums, eyelid. I mean, we've seen tongues tattooed. We don't do tattooed eyeballs, so we refuse to accept that because it's just too far. And right. it's very, very bad for you. So medically, we can't... Does he have them? Does Lucky have them? No. Oh, no. okay. Um, the thing I was going to say, <laughs> the one that you may want to not use, <laughs> I mean, it's so weird, but the strangest application we've had is for someone who could... who tattoos their own rectum and <laughs> what is bizarre is that they actually prolapse their rectum in order to tattoo it <laughs> and then stick it back in so i, I suspect i don't know do, that, they, do they tattoo their own because no one else will do it for them yes for a very steady hand yes. a very cool head and you can well. and of course we did, we did reject that we, we don't want to be encouraging such oh i don't know cover shot for next year's book <laughs> hey kids have a go Oh, oh my god! Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. Wow, the Guinness line's pretty far out, but you do have a line. It turns out. <laughs> I found out a favourite tattoo artist who I think is still practicing of oh, yeah. mine. So this is a guy called Blaine Dickinson, and he got in the news in 2007. I can't believe he got in the news for this, but he tattooed a full English breakfast on top of a man's head, and that was that was it. Had uh-huh. the man requested Fine. it, or was it the man had, unwanted? I don't think yeah. he, he hadn't requested it. But Blaine Dickinson had said, I want to do this and I need a volunteer, right? So and he found a volunteer, some 19-year-old who said, yeah, I'll do that. It's funny. Anyway, the next thing Blaine Dickinson did, he got Anne Robinson's face tattooed onto his bottom next to the words, you are the weakest link, goodbye. Because he had been on the weakest link, but he got kicked out in the first round. He was on the show for about 45 seconds in total. (laughs) Got Anne Robinson's face tattooed on him. We have an ultra fan who has the owner of... Guinness World Records picture tattooed on himself. And I think also restraining order so you can't come near the office as right. well. But, right. um, this is, uh, he's what tattooed on him? Uh, well, it probably should be. Yeah, be <laughs> should more women than men have tattoos? Really? I find that really surprising. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I find that surprising, yeah. In almost every country. So it's in the UK, it's 40% to 36%. 40% of women have tattoos. 40%. It's quite high, isn't wow. it? Yeah. Um, in oh no, sorry, that's the average is forty percent to thirty six percent, and in the UK it's forty seven percent to thirty three percent, and they're also more popular among people with higher levels of education. Are they? Interesting. Yeah. Is that because they can afford it as well? I wonder. Oh, maybe they're quite expensive, aren't they? When you oh, you can get some cheap Backstreet ones. Well, I definitely have a couple of friends of mine yeah. who are seventeen, <laughs> getting some twenty quid jobs. I found one tattoo which is worth millions. You'd obviously have to remove it from the person in order to sell it at auction um oh is it a line of code that is the code for google or their algorithm and why why would that be (laughs) worth that much because it runs google it's oh you mean it's like actually used someone's plugged in via their back (laughs) well like every morning google's keeping one person prisoner in a cellar (laughs) and all of its code i'm not saying that necessarily but i'm just saying that that might be yeah that would be a way of keeping the secret wouldn't it yeah well, really he's good. got it in one. <laughs> yep, that's, no, is that it? That's it. <laughs> um, no, it is, in fact, Kate Moss has two birds, two uh, a, a sort of flock of birds on her lower back. Wait, two or a flock? Well, 
I thought it was two because I've seen the picture. Yeah. Um, okay. But then she said we decided to do a flock of birds in the quote that I'm looking at right now. Mm. Uh, it's in the picture that mm. I saw. It's two little birds on the back. And it was tattooed by Lucian Freud, the oh. famous artist. And these are original drawings. And he used to tattoo when he was in the Navy. So he would tattoo sailors. And she heard about that when they were chatting one day. And she said, I'd love to have a tattoo by you. Wow. So she thinks that probably everyone in the Navy from his period has probably passed away by now. So she's probably the only living person with a Lucian Freud original mm-hmm. tattoo. So she said, if you cut that off her body i'm not saying anyone should if you're listening uh, sure. she's already sent it to craig in a matchbox yeah. <laughs> but you know that that skin is is worth a lot it's original sure. art by lucian freud um there's another very expensive tattoo uh, or a very a tattoo that's worth a huge amount and that belongs to a guy called tim steiner do you know about this guy oh, he's no. yeah. so he has a tattoo on his back that was designed by this belgian artist called wim delvoy and it's very cool if you look it up it's uh, it covers his whole back and there's like fish being ridden by children and stuff like that and it was sold to a german art collector called rick reinking and the idea is that when he dies when tim steiner dies he's agreed that his back can be removed and it'll be given to rick reinking and framed on his wall and it was a good few tens of thousands of pounds he paid for that Hmm. so he's already sold it and he's got the money He's got the money. Yeah. Again, I, like we discussed with selling your hair in advance, that was a thing that people did. They'd sell their hair and they'd get a small down payment for making the deal and then they'd go back for the rest of it when they chop their hair off. I would just run away. I would just run away, take the money and run. Yeah, yeah. If you were tattoo back guy. Yeah. Tattoo back guy didn't get the money though. The artist who tattooed it on got the money. What the hell does tattoo back guy get? I don't know, a little bit of a, t- a fame on the No Such Things as Fish podcast. But does he get anything? He must I, get a percentage. I think he got some payment, yeah, because he had to sign a contract. There is a Roald Dahl short story about a guy who has a beautiful work of art by a famous artist tattooed on his back. Is and, then, and then it ends up in a gallery. Do you and do does work? he get money before he dies? I can't remember the, I can't remember the details. <laughs> <laughs> I think he might do. Oh, wow. Plagiarized by this artist. Right. Okay, here's, a, here's an ethical dilemma for all of you. Okay. You're a doctor working in an A&E department, right? Yeah. Someone comes in, a patient, unconscious. Uh, they have the words do not resuscitate tattooed on their chest. Yep. Uh, the word not is underlined. So it's quite emphatic. Do yep. not resuscitate. And it's signed as well, also in a tattoo. Yeah. Do you resuscitate the guy? No. Okay. No, that's a thing, right? It's a thing where you can request. I believe... You can request it, but there's paperwork. Yeah. It's an, like, this is not an official... Oh, no, but uh, yeah, I guess I guess it's just a reminder. Because I read about another lady who had that on her front, but on her back, just in case she was on the wrong side, it said PTO. So... No. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, well, Dan has really reduced this, I would think, quite complicated ethical dilemma, which actually happened, which the hospital called in specialists for. You just said, no, don't resuscitate. Yeah, that is, it's really tough because I think, um, and I have not researched this, so please don't quote me on this, any actual surgeons, but I think it's like if the patient has made their wishes clear, you're supposed to follow them. I think there are ways in which you can make wishes clear. So it, it is sometimes a bit of a grey area, and that does seem quite clear once you've underlined it, unless you meant to do a strike through, of course, and you slightly <laughs> but, misaligned it. Yeah, <laughs> but there was someone else who in 2012 had a DNR tattoo on his chest. But he was conscious when he was in hospital and the doctor said, look, what's this DNR tattoo on your chest? And he said, oh, I got it because I lost a bet playing poker. Oh. <laughs> I, I actually would love to, if ever I'm in the position, I'd love to be resuscitated. And he, the doctor said, you should really get that tattoo removed. And he said, I don't think anyone will take it seriously. <laughs> wow. So it, does, it can, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, DNR could stand for it. DNR could stand for do now resuscitate. <laughs> yeah. imagine, if, imagine getting a do now resuscitate. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that the judge who presided over the Da Vinci Code plagiarism case hid his own code in the actual text of the judgment. (laughs) Unprofessional. Very unprofessional. Yeah, so there was this big plagiarism case, I don't know if you remember, between Dan Brown, the author of the Da Vinci Code, and the authors of a book called The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. And The Holy Blood and Holy Grail was a nonfiction book where a hypothesis was put out that the grail was in fact a bloodline lineage of christ and there's a lot of similarities in the book to the point where dan brown actually amalgamates the author's names bajant and lee into a character within the book so there's definitely a sort of uh, acknowledgement of the book anyway huge case multi-million dollar case and the judge finds in favor of dan brown saying it is not plagiarism and when he handed over the judgment, it went round to all sorts of, you know, different media outlets, including The Guardian, where a journalist who was also a lawyer called Dan Tench was reading it. And he noticed that certain words had just a random letter italicized in it for no reason at all. And he thought, that's a bit odd. What's going on there? And then this is where the bit of the story gets a bit hazy for me, because it sounds like the judge, Justice Peter Smith, wrote to Dan Tench to say, have you noticed anything weird about the old judgment there? Yeah, he really, really wanted it to be found. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> like a kid with a secret. Yeah, exactly. You know, you look, know look, I am. Look, at, look at the opening paragraph, see what you see. And, you know, and then he was like, yeah, I noticed these italics. Uh, you know, it's a bit odd. So he tried to crack it, wasn't quite sure how to do it. And then old judge got back in contact going, ooh, why don't you look at my who's who? I've had some clues in there. I don't Middle know why. of a manslaughter case. <laughs> he's just there typing away. Also, he's British. I don't know why I've given him some like old Wild West gold digger. Kind of. Well, now, if you look at it. So more and more clues were given and they kept trying to crack it. And eventually, yeah. eventually it was cracked. And the answer was so dull. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a very interesting. Do you, the answer? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's not dull. I think it's absolutely bizarre. So yeah, the, sorry. Go on, Andy. The, the, the answer is Jackie Fisher. Who are you? Dreadnought. Okay, and Jackie Fisher was an admiral in the early 20th century. Who's really interesting? He changed the whole Royal Navy. He's incredible. And Justice Peter Smith had a particular interest in Jackie Fisher. So you know, hid this code completely for his own amusement. Yeah, but Jackie Fisher's amazing. Yeah, mm. he's yeah. so cool. First person ever to use the abbreviation OMG to mean, oh, my God, when he was in his 70s. So very cool and down with the kids, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah. Wow. When was Jackie Fisher around? Sorry. He was writing to Winston Churchill, I think, just yeah. after the First World War. It was, was in it? 1917 so. that he used that. But he is incredible. He, Jackie Fisher, he joined the Navy at the age of 13, which is, you know, mind blowing. He served in the Crimean War. And he revolutionized the Navy. He created the first ever all big gun fast battleship, which is a technical term, apparently. Just all the guns are big, uh, is what I take from that. And he was made first sea lord. Then he lost the job. And then he was given it back again because the guy who replaced him was Prince Louis of Battenberg, who was a sort of born in Germany, had a German name. Beginning of the First World War, lots of suspicion. So he was replaced, despite the fact he'd been in the British Navy for 40 years. Like, unimpeachably, totally British, but he was called Prince Louis of Battenberg. Mm. So he lost the job and Jack, Jackie Fisher got it again. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting that he was replaced by Battenberg, which is a cake, because right. Fisher 
was responsible for introducing bread onto submarines. I didn't know. So that maybe about... Passenberg went on to bring cakes on one one step further. Fisher introduced bread onto submarines. Yeah, they How used would to... no one thought of yeah. taking bread onto a submarine before. Everyone, no one, no one made the leap from biscuits to bread. I think it was because you couldn't take fresh bread because you know it goes pretty moldy right. um, slash stale. So he introduced the idea of baking their own bread, taking the ingredients for bread, and then you become bakers, artisan bakers oh, under the sea. So cool. Okay, Jackie Fisher's in- interesting. I, I grant you that. <laughs> yeah. Like, but I'm just saying, you know, if the code revealed something like he's actually guilty, you know, it's yeah. something like what does it actually mean though? What, yeah. what is the end result of doing all this? Other than yeah, you're a smart ass. Know what? Yeah, exactly. No, you're right. That's it. But he didn't even get it right, did he? And that's I mean, just do it properly at least, Smithy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he made a few mistakes. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, I think I'm on the defendant side in this. I'm on the side of Michael Bajant and Richard Lee. I think the judge might have called it wrong. That's my wow. final ah. statement. OMG. Yeah. again, Fisher. <laughs> No, solely because he doesn't sound like a trustworthy character. He's Who? busy concocting. Dan Brown or Peter no, Smithy? The, the Peter Smithy. Peter Smith. Sorry, got it. Busy concocting his codes, and yeah, the, the character of Lee Teabing is that how we're pronouncing it? And the Dan Brown novels is um, those two men's names, which I find weird because Dan Brown went to the trouble of making an anagram out of Bajant's name for Teabing. Right. And then couldn't be bothered to find an anagram for Lee. Well, what's Lee the anagram? Eel? Much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's L-E-I-G-H, to be fair. So you've got oh, some things to play with okay. there. Heigl. Heigl Teabing. Heigl Teabing. Even for Dan Brown, I think that's a bit far. <laughs> yeah. Dan Brown, as well as writing the Da Vinci Code, which has sold, what? I mean, something incredible. Tens of millions. Tens of millions yeah. of copies, yeah. Almost as much as the Guinness World Records book. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Nice try, Brown. It's an even more implausible stuff yeah. than that, Brown. <laughs> he is rumoured to be the author of a 1995 dating guide called 187 Men to Avoid, a survival guide for the romantically frustrated woman. Mm. Okay? This is a humour book, and there was a story about it, I think, in the New York Times. Really recently, there's a woman called Chloe Gordon who is trying to track it down, right? Mm. Because she believes this must exist. It's by Danielle Brown. That's who it's listed as being by. Again, the master of codes conceals his identity. (laughs) Whenever she tries to buy it, she gets delivered the wrong book. This has happened to her repeatedly, and lots of different wrong books are labelled as being this book. And there's been some error with the barcode. There's been some mistake that means that this missing mystery book by we think by Dan Brown, because his agents will not confirm that he's written this book. They just he's never said anything. He completely stonewalls about it. But we think it's believed that he wrote it uh, with his quite confusing his future ex-wife Blythe Brown. So she wasn't his wife yet when they wrote it. Then they got married. Then they got divorced. What if the barcode is a code that needs to be cracked? This is all sounding amazing. He puts codes everywhere, this guy. This is what Dan Brown does. I know, but this is such a tedious sequel that you two are attempting to write between you in imitation of Dan Brown. I'm seeing that Indiana Jones, you know, that huge vault of things, just all of this book. Thousands and thousands of copies because it's just got the wrong barcode. (laughs) That fits slightly into his early career as such, the idea that he would have written this book. Because he was a musician, he tried to be a musician, he had a CD that was released, there was a song in it called 976 Love, and then he followed it up with another CD called Angels and Demons, which eventually became the first of the Robert Langdon novels for... Wait, was it a song? No, no, it was an album. album. Yeah, it was an album called Angels and Demons by Dan Brown. 
And it's nothing to do but, with his future career as an author. Okay, so you said the CD became his first Robert Langdon book. Yeah. Which yeah. Is the book based on the album. What I meant, sorry, is the title. Okay. Very uh, sort of, if you know the Da Vinci Code series, yeah. is the prequel to the Da Vinci Code. Uh, and wow. then the sequel in the actual movie series. Very much like the wife situation, sort of predating and then becoming the future ex. <laughs> that Angels and Demons is the prequel in the books, but the sequel in the movies. Great, because he got any records that you know of Dan Brown because he sold so many books that you th- I, I would think he must I think at some point he did have that record but the, the problem is, is we find it very hard because we ha- we claim to have one of these records right. mm-hmm. as the best selling and we're not Do even you? sure ourselves so we, we, <laughs> we used to always sell ourselves as the best selling copyright book yeah. um, because we, in 1974 I think it was we overtook Dr. Spock's book of childcare which was at the point and then we, because we had effectively the same book, we we were different Doctor Spock. Different Doctor Spock. Thinking of the other Doctor Spock. Yeah. All oh, right. Show the, them no emotion yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> Live long and prosper, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, book. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, no, not that Doctor Spock. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, that's a really um, famous one. Is it Benjamin Spock? Benjamin Spock. Who wrote, yeah, and it's yeah. sort of it was the manual. Million, on... like seventy-seven million copies wow. or something. Oh. Uh, and at some point in 1974, I think it was, we overtook it. Anything else on Dan Brown? He never reads other books, which is a bit distressing. Well, he could read, explain something. He definitely like read one, style. didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I think that's really clear. Yes. Read one book, took all of its ideas, By read Heigl not another. Heigl Teabing. Yeah. <laughs> he said in a piece that was the New York Times on him, he said, I don't read other fiction because reading other people's work doesn't help me. It just turns me into a consumer rather than an author. Wow. Isn't that extraordinary? That is, like... Probably explains a lot. But he reads... Well, I thought he reads non-fiction. I think... I thought he just didn't read novels. Well, I think that counts as reading. I think that counts as reading. That's like being a chef chef and not eating food. It's weird. (laughs) I think it's it's incredibly odd. It's incredibly weird to... Tr- believe that you can write genuinely good literature but be so arrogant about your abilities mm. that you think you don't need to read other examples of it to draw from them and learn I'm going to be a them. consumer a few things on other codes mm. hidden in places so recently a very exciting code was cracked uh, for the third time um, <laughs> diminishing levels of excitement surely <laughs> well it's been a while since someone cracked it um, this is a book that was called Kane's Jawbone and it was a hundred page long murder mystery puzzle. So it was created in 1935. And the idea was a prize was given out of 15 pounds, which is about a thousand pounds in today's money. And it was a novel that was printed out of order. And the idea is that you had to reorder it in order to work out who the murderer was. So page by page, the book had to be reordered by the person reading it to work out how the story wow. played out and who the murderer was cool. and it's a short novel it's only 100 pages but the possible combinations of 100 pages are 32 million so it's an extraordinarily hard thing to get right surely and, it's more than that well um yeah maybe 32 million plus and they're not numbered of course so number the pages just yeah yeah, yeah. yes so they're, they're not, not that's a challenge and it doesn't <laughs> do they have some pages where there are chapter openings i, I haven't actually seen the book okay. so yeah i'm not sure if it's just one long yeah, story yeah, yeah. but um it was set by an observer's oh. crossword compiler called edward powell's mather and yeah so it was bound out of order and only two people back in the day managed to do it who i think did it in collaboration and then it was republished recently because it's been out of print for a long time cool. by buddies of ours john mitchinson of qi who has been on the podcast with his company unbound and it was cracked by a british comedian 
who some of us in this room know as well, uh, John Finnamore. Really? Wow. John Finnamore, yeah, who, uh, John Finnamore's souvenir program on Radio 4. He's currently co-writing Good Omens 2 with Neil Gaiman. Um, yeah, he, is he managed to crack did he, it. Did they, I imagine it's a terrible Sounds book. tedious, yeah. isn't it? I mean, they have <laughs> yeah. to do it. No wonder only two people did it. It's like, oh, can't be bothered with it. Yeah. Oh, it's out of print. No surprise. Yeah. <laughs> well, so it was his lockdown hobby, and it took him six months to do it. Oh, and he used to goodness. go into a room, and he had to research everything to work out. You know, he'd be looking into where certain train stations were and stuff like that. Just constant research to make the connections in the book work, and uh, eventually we, got there. Are we 100% sure it wasn't a publishing cock-up yeah. that was <laughs> post-talk rationalized <laughs> i'm so sorry we've put your book in the wrong order why don't we make this fun it's a good wind up for someone isn't it yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> one of the most explosive of codes um that probably rocked the world and the kind of sort of same way that the da vinci code really got people obsessed with it was the bible code wasn't it michael drosnin oh, yes. do you remember that yeah uh, have yeah. you met him i feel like yeah so said i that i before my life at guinness world records i was the editor of the x factor and not the Simon Cowell show, um, <laughs> but uh, like a paranormal magazine, and we covered all sorts of paranormal and conspiracy theories, ghosts, aliens, all that sort of stuff. And we spent, we gave a lot of inches to Michael to talk about the Bible code. And is it Rips, the Yahoo Rips, I think, who initially came up with the idea, who discovered this idea, yes, uh, and published the paper, which then Michael Drosnin went into the idea is that you have a skip code, so that every, I think it was like every fifth letter what so specifically in the bible every x yes, letter it, yes. was... I, think, I think it was the maybe it was in the hebrew version of it but you would take every fifth letter and it spells torah mm -hmm. for example or you take every hundredth letter and it will spell dana or you know and yeah. you just right. you go through and you come wow. up with these and it's probably now i think nonsense mm -hmm. in that you could take any big subject any big book and apply a skip code to it and you will find um, message. secret messages in the bible if you take every two millionth letter it spells out Jackie Fisher, who yes. are you? Dreadnought. <laughs> yeah. Exciting. Um, yes. So I think they, someone did a bit of research to disprove it by taking, I think, Moby Dick and found the death of Diana coded into Moby Dick. And if you apply the code, you, I mean, the words, it's Diana, Dodie, Skid, Hearse, Royal, Lady Diana, uh, Mortal in the Jaws of Death, and Henri Paul, even, is all within the same code. If you rip apart Moby Dick and find the code so yeah I think you'll find anything in anything yeah um, it's quite a convoluted way to have written that message isn't it once you <laughs> just, just write it like a normal sentence well, yeah, just, if you're gonna yeah. hide that code exactly, yeah. <laughs> he went on to produce this idea that somehow it was aliens that were giving us this code did he yeah that's that was the second book oh. so we, oh, we, oh, wow. we sort of parted ways at that point i thought he was an atheist who just uh, didn't believe it but just found it wow that's so no, interesting no, atheists can believe in aliens yeah no no um <laughs> yeah good point yeah. <laughs> yeah but yeah he aliens uh, we like gave us dna as a code of another kind he thinks it's all connected and yeah so we yeah, we stopped publishing him. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. You don't want to encourage that too much. The X Factor. <laughs> the conspiracy <laughs> publishing magazine this, stopped publishing him. Well, yeah. <laughs> Just to think about the tattoos, the other one that mm. came to mind was, it supported the very first use of this steganography, I think is mm -hmm. the word for it. When you hide codes, I think it was as the tattooing people's heads and then sending them off as a messenger. And then they arrive and then they shave their head. And There's just a full English breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Sent the wrong guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that in ancient Persia, instead of sitting in front of a fireplace to warm you up, you'd sit in front of a wind place to cool you down. It's <laughs> <laughs> mm. really cool. These are these really cool things called bard gears, and that spell like badgers. Yeah, I mean, you've really pronounced them unhumorously correctly there, I think, Anna. I'm really disappointed. Sorry. I was waiting to say badgers, and there we go. I'm so sorry. James would be so upset if he ever hears this, not doing a wanton mispronunciation. But they are on old Persian houses and old Middle Eastern houses, really, and they look like a mini Greek temple, really, don't mm, they? But yeah. like a really tall Greek temple that's acting as a sort of a chimney and they've got these columns on them, almost like Doric columns on them. They've been around for sort of 2,500 years at least, we think. We think perhaps they got the idea from ancient Egyptians. But the idea is that as wind blows past them, they funnel cool wind down into the house. And as the hot, hot air in the house rises, as hot air does, the cool air is pulled downwards and it would cool the house up. And it would often be channeled into the sitting room or the general living area. And a family could sit around the wind place and have their <laughs> hair blown out of, out of whack. So <laughs> would it properly bring it in terms of gales of wind? Or would it be just gales, a, a sort mean. of... Like, if, if it's windy, really windy, yeah. Yeah. it's like a Beyonce. It's just... So many great music videos filmed in yeah. 500 BC, actually. Um, if it was a completely still day, it would be very surprising to have a gale force wind coming down your chimney. But yeah, yeah it would... It would be, you know, but, it would channel as much as it could. It's amazing. I've got a question, Anna. Could these things double as fireplaces? Is it just, you know, could you light a fire in there and... It'd get mm. blown out instantly, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah, I just understood. <laughs> or blown into the room and then I, just... <laughs> I've understood the problem, yeah. I think that there's a bit of engineering side which might screw that up for you. There's sort of like various flaps and stuff. They're really cleverly designed. So they'd face a very specific way. They'd face in the direction that the wind would most commonly come in that area. And they'd have little flaps that you could open and close and various ducts on them that depending on the, where the wind was coming from, you'd open and close to maximize efficiency so cool. wasn't there also a thing where like because obviously once the air is inside the air would warm up and rise they also mm. had sort of like cat flaps to let the warm air out sort of the building slightly pressurized yes. the warm air out so wow. you were just bringing in kind of like an air conditioner the right modern that you've got the... surgery they have the yeah. same thing don't they because they the pressure is different inside so it blows everything out of the room not in yeah in, mm. modern, what, sorry? in, in, in the operating theaters so that when you open the door, you just, yeah, you don't get germs. Things get pulled out of the room and not wow. into the room. It's in amazing. Yeah. That's so that, interesting. Oh, it's brilliant. It's, I was saying yeah. to Andy earlier, just we're so clever as humans, the history of humans. We so, are Just to, like, to invented something like <laughs> that. got this like far that. to this point right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, it's just so clever. What I'm saying is, like, we've been deserted on an island, and all we had were the elements of the Earth and the universe to play with, and this is where we've got to. And when you hear stuff like this, I just think... Magic. Yeah. The ancient oh, yeah. Egyptians probably came up with this, and it's what a system. How mm. clever. Everyone listening, give yourselves a pat on the back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Well done. <laughs> yeah, we are screwing it up now because having invented air conditioning, we've now sort of forgotten the techniques of using natural um, ways of cooling houses. And now um, air conditioning is destroying the environment. Yes. I seriously contributing to climate change. Okay, take that pat back. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, and it's all these fuckers' faults, isn't it? Yeah. These Persians introducing the idea. <laughs> no, no, they're the ones they, who have they, the solution. They invented the electricity free version, which is incredible. <laughs> they invented mm. the concept. <laughs> Come on. Mm. The concept of being cool. No, it is bad. Yeah. There are a billion air conditioning units on the planet, one for every seven people, and that is uh, it's too many. 
it's too many by a long and obviously if you live somewhere really really hot the natural impulse is to get any kind of device that lets you cope with the summers but uh yeah it's really wasteful because a lot of the energy it uses gets turned into heat so you're cooling yourself and heating the room and therefore the planet yeah yeah Although obviously we we can talk having just endured a three month long summer. Of yeah, when it's hot, energy. sometimes that's all you want, isn't it? Just like, yeah, stick it yeah, on. Yeah. I'll be yeah. dead soon. Just stick it on. <laughs> <laughs> I love freezing cold rooms. I've got to say, I'm obsessed with air conditioning. Uh, oh wow! There may be a thing you can do to trick yourself in this regard. This is really interesting. There was a study mm-hmm. done by a guy called Frederick Rolls, who is a psychologist, and he's a member of the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers. Anyway. His study has shown that if you are shown a false thermometer displaying a high temperature, you will feel warm, even if the room is not especially hot. So maybe if we all just draw a thermometer on the wall saying it's only 10 degrees in here, what a chilly day it is, then you won't need AC. Wow. That's the, I don't know. We'll be sacked for defacing the office. (laughs) (laughs) Have you guys heard of John Gorry? No. He could have invented air conditioning. and he, Someone got there first? or No, he got there first. Oh. In 1851, he patented an ice machine. He was a doctor in Florida. He wanted something to keep rooms cool for patients. And it, his was a bit different because it created ice, which would then cool the room, rather than um, him cooling the room with ammonia or evaporation principles. But he was run out of business by, can you guess... Big ice. Big, a giant ice cubes. Pretty much. There were these ice makers from the north of the USA who made their money hacking up ice and transporting it it across the country. And they lobbied against him. Don't call them ice makers. That's like saying Dan Brown invented the idea for the Da Vinci Code rather than (laughs) taking it from somewhere else and moving it into his own property. This is the most legally contentious podcast we've done for a while. (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. The ice sellers then. Uh, The ice king, Frederick Tudor, was his name. (laughs) Not a medieval monarch, uh, despite the name of it. Um, yeah, he, he campaigned against him and John Gorry died penniless a few years later. His invention didn't take off, oh, but it worked man. and it would have worked. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Gutting. God. That idea of bringing ice in, there's an older example of that, which was a mountain of snow was created in the garden next to a villa, which was imported via donkeys, sort of just carrying it in. But Wait, where, where are we? When are we? in old days. It's a friend of the podcast, <laughs> Basie Anus. Um, <laughs> aka Elagabalus um, Roman emperor, emperor Roman emperor who featured on the show uh, because he invented the whoopee cushion and his original name is Basie Anus <laughs> he had it's pronounced differently Craig yeah. uh, I, it's, it's just bad it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's definitely yeah. spelled Basie Anus yeah. um, but yeah so he imported this is the story he yeah. imported um, a lot of snow into his villa so he had this giant snow mountain for the summer just to keep himself Wow. Warm. Cool. Did Sorry. he shove a little... <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> he built an igloo out of it. And actually, igloos are very warm yeah. if you get inside them. <laughs> Keep them cold, yeah. I had this idea. I've got many ideas for films as well, which never get made and never get written. No one's ever done an Inca movie, like the proper Inca movie to end all Inca movies. So mm-hmm. I had this great idea. I went to research around Peru... There's an excuse to go on holiday, really. But they have similar things, don't they? The colcas and where they would keep food. So they have these oh. grain stores on mountainsides, oh, which really? are designed in such a way to channel the air. Probably very similar sounding. You know, the Incas were amazing yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of architecture. But they have these grain stores, which are, are placed about one day's march apart as well across the whole country, like a network of them on the Inca Highway. Oh, wow. And they're designed and have uh, channels to drain the water so that if it gets wet, 
it doesn't spoil the food. Uh, so that's how they were able to grow so big um, and cover the whole country because of these cultures. So and they're amazing clever. things, yeah. That's very smart. Very cool. yeah. yeah, I heard of those. Well, that's like um, actually the Persians also had these things called yakchal, which sound quite similar. They look like big igloos. Is this what these look like? They're sort of like big huts. Um, well, the Incas changed the shape depending on what was stored in it. So the like, grain would be round and fruit would be square. <laughs> so, so you could oh, see from a distance what you're having for dinner. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Amazing. <laughs> and they'd also store non-food things, but it was mostly food. Yeah, but different shapes for different foods. That is incredible. What's it like a pig shape or a? <laughs> well, I, think, <laughs> I think there was that many shapes but yeah there were there were some different corn on the cob shape yeah. <laughs> flashing hamburger <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah the persians had these huge kind of insulated igloos which were really similar and yeah i think a few hundred of them still exist and still function many hundreds of years old and you can shove frozen stuff in them they can keep things below freezing even when it's well above freezing wow just pop there for your ice cream when air conditioning was new, uh, or not when it was first invented, but when it was newly being adopted across America, especially in America, that's where a lot of AC units are because they've got cities like Washington, D.C. and New York, which are so hot in the summer. But th I love this fact. This is from Prospect magazine. They wrote about air conditioning. It was easier to get into buildings because air conditioning units were quite large at the time, right? And air conditioning in cars was very rare and special in the 1950s because obviously to miniaturize the technology so it fits into a car was really expensive i'll take the window down well he, he, yeah <laughs> I exactly mean, if you're in a car just yeah but in texas in the 50s it was so fashionable that some people would drive around with their windows shut tight in a hundred degree heat just to fool their neighbours into thinking that they had AC in the car. <laughs> Imagine. God. God. <laughs> the driver of that car sweating profusely. Yeah. So, yeah. But he's got a little steam. thermometer drawn on the side. <laughs> it says it's only five degrees. Wow. I think at the beginning of mobile phones in cars, that the Koreans, I think, everyone who was getting pulled over, about 70% had just black wooden bricks who were driving around to make it look like they had mobile phones. <laughs> it's probably as dangerous, but yes. Do you think you can get arrested for that? Can the police find you when they stop you and it turns out like you were just holding yeah. a brick? Not on the phone. What a yeah. brilliant get around. Yeah. <laughs> Always ha carry a brick in the car just in case you get stopped. Yeah, yeah. How yeah. is that a get around? What, and then just swap? Because well, you can't you can actually be... talk on the phone if it's a brick. No, I know, but you can be on the phone and then quickly, oh, yeah. you or know. a brick cover for your phone. Just flip it around. Oh, yes. I mean, <laughs> just don't be on the phone when you're driving, obviously. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, that's the, that's this is the saying. most yeah. important thing. But yeah. if you have to be, get that brick. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. Why do you think aircon was initially taken up uh, widely? Cool, cool people down. Incorrect. Oh, oh I, yes. What? Oh, this, is a, this is a publishing fact, isn't it? It is not a publishing fact, although Kinky I think paper. I maybe know what you're talking about. I'm actually, so it was used in publishing, but then it was widely taken up to actually warm places up. Uh, and it was taken up by uh. factories. This is in the early 20th century. And so the idea with aircon is really the technology behind it just allows you to manipulate the temperature and the humidity in whichever way you like. And the take up was by factories and particularly textile factories where it wasn't humid enough and cotton threads were breaking. And so they mass bought these new aircon units to make it warmer and more humid. I'm so annoying. Oh uh, yeah, the humidity thing, yeah. 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 I so, walked wait. right into it. You <laughs> did. But that's why it's important in printing because I obviously, not to bring it back to the book again, but I do spend a lot of time in printing factories, printing the Guinness World Records book, mm -hmm. which is just out. <laughs> and um, controlling humidity is a huge thing, yeah. And that, that's, I was reading fairly early on that it was introduced uh, because the paper gets kinky. Um, yeah. Because the humidity changes and the paper warps and then you can't print 
particularly four colour work on it because you can't get registration. So, so then does it change yeah. the how the ink sits because the paper scrunches so, up and scrunches so yeah, out so and stuff? You want it to register perfectly on top of each other. Mm-hmm. But if the paper slightly kinks, mm-hmm. then it doesn't line up. So you get these weird halos, coloured halos around I'm images. hoping when you said it gets kinky that all the material suddenly just turns a bit sexy. Fishnet. <laughs> yeah. It's like one of those mugs. If it gets too hot, it reveals a naked woman. <laughs> Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is that the world's oldest balloon has been blown up for nearly 30 years. Mm. Mm. And someone's been continuously blowing it up. (laughs) Very big by now. (laughs) And he's exhausted. Um, I'm wary of saying this in front of the records master, but there are a few different claims about the world's oldest balloon. I don't know if any have actually come across your desk and been verified. This was a recent story, a young man called Ryan Harrison. He was interviewed by the Sun newspaper and he was given a foil balloon when he was born in 1992. And his parents taped it up in a box and he insists that it's still completely blown up. So that's one good claimant. There's one guy called Jordan Lyman who lives in Birmingham and in 2018 he'd have one for 26 years. So that might be 29 years old by now, so about the same age. It's mm. only the size of a tennis ball, but he claims it was only the size of a tennis ball when he got it. What a so, sad balloon. Oh, horrible. That was. <laughs> sad balloon. Well, yeah. he was small at the time as well. He was born and he was small, so it probably oh, yeah. looked like a normal yeah. balloon. Yeah. You put it next to him. I don't know why Dan's accepting that. You don't get <laughs> balloons in proportion to your own size. Well, yeah. <laughs> the younger the birthday, the bigger the balloon. Yeah. Dan often. really went with that, Anna, yeah. and I would have got away with it if it wasn't for you. <laughs> it always has to be the same size as your head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That would work. There you, go. you don't need it any bigger. Yeah. These are the tin foil balloons so if you're picturing the balloon Mm. right now it's not your classic rubber balloon this (laughs) is a this this one was a tin foil one almost is it mylar yeah so not yeah not um, actually tin foil obviously because that would make a balloon but yeah mylar which is is like a plastic pet Uh, thing that's been uh, covered in metal yeah Yeah. Yeah. tin foil foil, but not yeah yeah (laughs) but i just can't believe this i think they're lying i'm gonna come out and say it and i know i'm being sued by dan brown already but you know we've all had those balloons and they deflate by the end of the day practically they're kind of floppy and flaccid and sad it's absolutely incredible Hmm. yeah i do get i say i i mean the company gets probably once every couple of months um a claim in from mylar slash foil balloons Um, until you mentioned this was going to come up i thought you know, we reject it as a claim, interestingly, or we have done at least. But they all seem to be roughly the same age. And I'm just wondering if there is a, a manufacturing period when these Mylar balloons were made to a certain spec that was maybe too high. Mm. and all the, So it's the balloon on a stick, isn't it? The same one. It's yeah. a boy and it's a girl. Um, the golden they, age yeah. of making these when no, they accidentally made was, them indestructible. Yeah. <laughs> so I went through, and rather than going to bed last night, <laughs> I went through, well, I stopped at 101 claims. <laughs> Um, so to plot who at least claiming but obviously we haven't seen the balloons but I've plotted them all I mean I had a few from the UK there's a guy called Craig Wood uh, he's got an it's a boy uh, that's 28 years and 10 months um, Anne-Marie Ormshaw she's got an it's a girl and that's 33 years old then I emailed them <laughs> and two came back actually <gasps> no way so I've got pictures of these balloons and it's the same type of balloon Oh, uh, the tinfoil classic. And it is the Mylar. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say Mylar because the, the Guinness World Records books uh, traditionally were those shiny ones. If you remember, there was a big yeah. three mm. years, was made on the same material. Ah. Um, so again, I've weirdly I had to become an expert in 
tinfoil in Mylar. You don't have to say tinfoil just as a soft yeah, to sorry, yeah. I don't know here. We get it. But we have a pet foil cover and we don't know because we want the book to be recyclable so we've right. got rid of that because the, the sheets themselves can't be recycled because it's plastic. This is huge. This is this amazing. Is, so I think we need to reactivate this as a record because um, yes. it's obviously a thing in our job at Guinness of Records is to reflect what's happening. So if people are storing these balloons yeah. and which they do seem to be I don't know why do you keep balloons down if you, um, <laughs> do you keep no. everything like toenail clippings and I do I, yeah yeah I keep a lot of random oh, things oh you've been to Dan's house yeah. I see yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but not, not balloons but yeah I do have a cabinet of, of super old things that I keep what like I'll go like, through like it and what? see um, super old things well like toenail clippings no like no it's mainly like the toys that I had as a child and stuff like that but I'm doing it for my kids I'm keeping stuff like I've got the pillow that my wife was sleeping the oldest on when excuse we, uh, when we yeah. Yeah. it'll be the oldest pillow oh. in the world no it's, no nothing nothing special like that no, like a like a balloon um, <laughs> you think your kids are going to appreciate receiving the pillow that your wife was oh, on when she gave birth. Was conceived on yeah, I've got my, you know, the the blue scrubs. I've kept that that my second son mm. I was wearing when he was born to give it to him for Damn. a Halloween in when he turns eighteen. Just get them a proper eighteenth birthday present. No, if you save Just this stuff up, it, it's worth way more, oh, isn't it? Oh okay. You live in London. You must have a very big property. I don't understand. How <laughs> <laughs> can you afford this? <laughs> okay, so you're gonna. I mean, it sounds like unless these are legit that unfortunately for 29 year old ryan he's not got the record it's very exciting i think this might be a record for the first time we've ever had a fact pretty much comprehensively debunked while we're recording it (laughs) we normally wait until the recording session's over before discovering it's wrong (laughs) also these people must be so excited because did you say you were looking this up at two o'clock in the morning and you've they've replied already presumably uh, yeah that's the they've been waiting well because i think if you if you have guinness world records on your email address people tend to get quite excited yeah. yes. and also the people who've written in and then we've rejected and then i've written back saying actually this might be a record oh, so yeah, they're wow. very very excited about it wow so good. Uh, and sending pictures of these balloons and yeah the story and you know that's like, amazing that like even though it was rejected She's held on to it going anyway, one day, yeah, one yeah. day they'll Damn understand. You, Guinness, well, yeah. I'm going to keep it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Did the reply go, well, well, well. Yes. <laughs> back Look yeah. who's back. Who comes floating back to my balloon. <laughs> oh my God. So how do people beat it if we tried to set a record? So if we if we hold they a record, just have to do better than you. But what do they but, do? They record a video, or do you have to be present? Yeah, so, or? Um, no, we can't. We get so we get about a thousand applications through, so we can't go to everything. Yeah. So we do have some guidelines for filming it, getting an independent witness. You have to uh, get photographs and all the stuff of, of the space you're doing it in. Send all that to us with the video and, and a one take video as well. Yeah, because um, <laughs> we don't want any cuts um, or even two videos if you can't fit one into the frame, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, send it in. So go to guinnessworldrecords.com and register your uh, application. We send you the rules because every record has a set of rules that you must follow. Um, if you do that, then you can. Attempt oh my words. If you set the record, then the next person who applies gets given your figure to beat. Yes. So they'll know that they have to do better than. And what qualifies as an independent observer? Does that just mean you can't be holding a gun to their head at the time? Or... Like, like not your mum and. Not yeah. your mum. We've had that before. We actually got reported oh. to the uh, Queen because <laughs> someone, a very, I can't say who it is, but someone who was very famous, it was a famous organist. I'll leave it at that. And Ooh, that narrows the field yeah, considerably. Yeah, there are not that many. Yeah. Anyway, he did have his, I think, his mum as a witness to the longest 
um, organ marathon mm-hmm. and like 25 <laughs> hours of playing the organ. But we then rejected it, saying, well, you can't have your mum say you did it, because that's nothing. <laughs> so he wrote to the Queen and said, this is disgusting, he was, wasn't British, narrows it down again, <laughs> um, wrote to the Queen to say, this is outrageous, one of your subjects has refused me uh, my recognition. So the Queen has to react to things. If you send her a letter, she has to do something about she it. She never reacts to any of mine. No. <laughs> so then she sent it to the Department of Trade and Industry, who then got in touch to say, what happened with the organ? It's like, why, what, what? Oh my so, god! And they they understood in the end that there were guidelines and yeah. they didn't follow the guidelines. So that um, is amazing, that's extraordinary. So okay, a foreign organist. I can't believe they who's, the queen who's on apparently you. mega famous <laughs> in the organ world. In the organ world. Longest organ played means very different thing, obviously, in other record breaking. You wouldn't get your mum to witness that. <laughs> <laughs> Not again. <laughs> um, <laughs> Weirdly, um, the Queen has several records. I've been looking her up on Guinness World Records. Ah, uh, does yeah. she? She's got a lot of free time. Yeah. She's got yeah. loads. Yeah, yeah. She has, yeah. But they're all... They're all kicks to the head. <laughs> yeah, minutes. <laughs> I know. They're all really, you know, like, oldest current monarch, longest reigning queen. Yeah, Charles, yeah, but... it has to be your own head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah, she came to the office once, actually. Wow. So she was, I imagine, during organ gate. Uh, <laughs> yes, just to sort, sort it out herself. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, she came because we'd won some awards. Did you let her in? Because you were saying often you don't let yeah, her in. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, we did the full paint the office. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love it if the Queen's sitting in reception next to <laughs> Lucky Diamond Rich. <laughs> yes. We had uh, Peter Dowd as well turned up to the office one day. Peter Dowd as well is uh, quite famous in that world of glutton. He has like fastest three course meal, and, you know, uh-huh. and he has this thing where he swallows hot dogs whole. So. <laughs> And and that is the, one of the rules. He can't bite them. So he 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 is from Essex, I think. And he he opened weirdly opened a can a can of hot dogs at his home, and then took it on the train into London, open still, full of and full of brine, and nice. turned up at the office and said, "I'm Peter Dallas." And I knew who he was because because it was just a, one of the names that I just had dealt with over the years. Like, oh yeah, Peter. Hello. He said, "I want to eat these." Sausages. It's like, well, okay. I can't. I yeah. can't stop you. Yeah. So this is. This is Have you this met is, the Queen? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is why we stop people coming to the office now because he he ate eight of these sausages back to back. So you you put it in your mouth and you push one down with the other. So you have this chain. What a nightmare! <gasps> How do you stop? Well, yes. No, you, you can't get any more in literally because it's like you know it's, it's gone as far as it can oh, go. Wow. So do you so need a ninth sausage to push in the eighth one and then you withdraw, you retract oh, you, you can get your fingers, you can get your fingers in there. Okay, sorry, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, anyway, he did it, he got the record, great. And then he said, I can also drink milk hanging upside down. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I don't know how we, we haven't got a frame or anything, but we had two very tall boys in the office. So we got the two boys to hold him by his ankles upside down in the reception area. And he drank two pints of milk. But what you have to do with this record, you have to get up very quickly um, otherwise, the milk and gravity, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was trying to communicate this after the fact when he had a gallop full of milk and nine sausages. <laughs> and he couldn't get it out, so he ended up vomiting all the sausages <laughs> and all the milk oh. all over our office reception. Oh, no. Do you then have to oh, take no. the record away from him? Uh, he didn't get the milk one then, no. Oh. He got the sausages, that's okay. They stayed in long enough, but yeah. <laughs> so the office manager's like, that, that is it. 
<laughs> We're not having any more people your come to your office. office oh my wow. god! That, the scenes outside your office must yeah. be amazing. People <laughs> po going up on their noses, and yeah. you know, yeah. how many cleaners have quit after yeah, one yeah. day? That's the main image I'm going to be left with after this week's podcast, though, is the guy on the train with the open tin of <laughs> Why sausages. Did he, why did he open? The he tin probably had before. one tin left. He opened it. And he thought, oh no! Yeah. Yeah. Or his wife was saying, "I need the tin opener here for yeah. dinner, so you're not taking that with you." <laughs> okay that's it that is all of our facts thank you so much for listening if you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast we can all be found on our twitter accounts i'm on at schreiberland andy at andrew hunter m craig at craig glendy and at gwr and anna you can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. Do check out all of our previous episodes. You'll find them up there. You'll also find a link to our upcoming tour, which begins this October. And of course, do go to all online bookshops and physical bookshops to get the latest Guinness World Records 2022. It is out now. Craig is the writer and editor of that book, uh, along with your buddies uh, in the office at Guinness World Records. It's an amazing book. Every year it's amazing. So do get this one. And yeah, we'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you all then. Goodbye. Goodbye.